Now, you hear me talking about supporting characters, and you look here at Matthew chapter 1, and I know what you're thinking. If you scan down through the chapter, you think genealogies. That's a lot of characters. It's a lot of characters with names I can't pronounce, and even more characters with names I can't pronounce. Surely, Jeff, you're not preaching on this genealogy here at Christmas Eve. But then you land on verse 18, and it says, Now this is the birth of Jesus, is as follows. You think, Phew. He's going to preach in that. Well, actually, I'm not. I'm going to go back to the first verse, and we're going to preach through the first bit. But I promise I won't read all the names tonight. Now, Pastor Steve is going to delve into the details on Sunday, and I invite you to come back because he's going to show us just how much there is for us to learn in those names and just how personal and how relevant it is. But that's for Sunday. You'll have to wait for that. I want to look at verse 1 and ask, why did... Matthew start with this genealogy doesn't an author want to hook people in at the very beginning like a modern screenwriter would probably start with Joseph and Mary and Jesus sneaking off in the night to escape from King Herod to get to Egypt that's not what Matthew does he doesn't start with that kind of drama but he is writing to catch attention he is writing to persuade And he must think that verses 1 to 17 contain critical information, even the kind of information that would grab your attention. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's only 16 words in the ESV translation. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the answer to the question, what child is this, is packed into these 16 words, and it is profound. In the very next verse, Matthew starts off with genealogy, those supporting characters that I'm referring to. And in doing so, he begins to unpack the riches of verse 1, and that's a task that he continues for all 28 chapters of the book. In thinking about genealogies, maybe I want to ask the children a question again here. Do any of you children like to climb trees? Maybe that's a bad question to ask. Anybody like to climb trees? It wouldn't be good to climb your Christmas tree. Now, that wouldn't go over so well. But do you know what a family tree is? And I wonder, can you climb a family tree? I've got a book home called How to Climb Your Family Tree, and it's about how to learn more about your ancestors. And these days, um, there's probably more interested in looking back at your family tree, but it's mostly a curiosity. We, maybe we could find someone famous back in our past or something like that. But in Jesus' day, a genealogy was very, very important. It had a number of uses. It determined who owned certain land. It determined what tax you paid. It determined whether you could be a priest. So these were records that were very carefully kept. But there's a couple of more greater uses that Matthew makes of this genealogy. Grander uses. And they are to prove who Jesus is and to tell the wonderful story of how God reached out to humanity to save his people. Now I want to illustrate by borrowing from a book, an excellent book called The First Days of Jesus. In this book, the authors start out by supposing that someone picked up a Bible and started to read it from the beginning without knowing how the story would end. Christmas is a good time for stories, especially this, the greatest story. So let's follow our reader as he traces through the story of God sending his son 
to us. The story starts off with God creating the universe. It's then the centerpiece of creation is humanity, set apart by God because men and women are made in God's image. Everything was perfect, especially the relationship between the man and the woman and their creator, God. But the man and the woman sinned and rebelled against God and plunged the world into ongoing rebellion. In the immediate aftermath of this rebellion, in Genesis chapter 3, God is banishing the man and woman from the garden and from the tree of life. It looks as if all is lost. But then we find an intriguing verse in Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent, the devil, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's offspring, but her offspring will bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head in some translations. What could this mean? Who is this offspring who might conquer the devil and restore God's creation to its intended perfection. Our reader continues to read God's story, and a few chapters later, he sees additional clues to solve the question of who will save us. He's introduced to Abram, and God speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor those and those who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God reveals himself to a particular man and says that this man Abram, who God later renames Abraham, will bless all the earth. Is this Abraham the one who will conquer the devil and restore creation to perfection and restore our relationship with our creator God? As the story progresses, we see that Abraham is far from perfect. He's a man who trusts God, but he can't break the bonds of sin and stop the rebellion. And so the search continues, but the scope is narrowed. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that a deliverer or a savior is promised, someone who will defeat the power of the devil. We've learned that God plans and promises to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham's offspring. When we look at Abraham's life, we see that God acted. Abraham couldn't make himself a great nation. In fact, Abraham and his wife Sarah had no children, and God miraculously gave them a child in their own old age. As our reader continues to read the Bible, he would encounter more characters, and the names are there in the genealogy, in Matthew, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. We don't have time tonight, but if you were to look at the stories of each of these characters, you would see God acting miraculously to protect this family tree and make sure that the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. Now, generations pass, and Abraham's family, God's people, are sent into slavery. Then they're miraculously delivered. But God's promise to bless all the people 
through Abraham's descendant is not fulfilled. Then our reader is introduced to a boy named David, who is a descendant of Abraham. He doesn't seem as likely a deliverer as his older brothers, but then he's made king. Could David be the one? Is he the seed of the woman who will bruise the serpent's head? David is called a man after God's heart. But despite David's devotion, he fails quite spectacularly. And while he confesses and is restored by God's mercy, he is not the king who will defeat the serpent in the power of sin. But God narrows the search once again, speaking to David through the prophet. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Sadly, David's kingly descendants often reject God's loving guidance and his repeated warnings through the prophets. But the prophets also repeat God's promises to save his people and raise up a king from the line of David. Jeremiah, long after David died, said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So kings come and go. Most of them don't serve God and plunge their people into more sin, rebellion, and brokenness. And God punishes them by sending a foreign country to conquer them, and this fulfills the words of warning to the prophets. But what about those words of deliverance, those promises of blessing? There is no king in Israel. The country is ruined. The best and the brightest have been sent away in exile. It looks again like all is lost. Our reader continues and finds in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that God miraculously returns the Jewish people back to Israel. But even then, the promise of a Savior who will crush the serpent's head is unfulfilled. There is no king who will reign forever. And this sentiment is reflected by the writer of Psalm 89. He says, you have said, speaking to the Lord in prayer, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. But then the writer continues to reflect on God's promises and their apparent unfulfillment and closes out the psalm by asking, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? The writer knows he cannot save himself. He writes, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of the grave? He continues by asking for the only thing that he knows that will save. That is the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness, his promise to send a savior. He says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David. So the Old Testament comes to an end. There's no king yet. You might be asking, Jeff, this is Christmas Eve. Why have you been telling a story of such longing and heartbreak? I have two answers. First, 
Don't forget the promises. Don't forget the promises of blessing. These are great and glorious promises. We don't have time to look at them all tonight. We read one. I just read one through Jeremiah where Jeremiah promises a wise king who would govern with justice and save the people. And I I do want to read from Isaiah chapter 9, a beautiful promise at Christmas time. It's familiar. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there are great promises in this story so far. The second reason I wanted to tell this story the way I did is that it shows us that without Jesus, life is painful and there is no rescue. The people of Israel waited for a savior. And while they waited, they would be encouraged by the promises. But they would also feel the pain of life without the savior. And the same is true for us today. And we can mask it with entertainment and with technology that brings healing. Thank the Lord in many respects and We can forget sometimes, but in 2020, of all years, is a year that we've seen that technology can't solve everything. We can't find peace with our fellow man. We are powerless against the effects of sin and death. So this background is necessary to see the glory, the drama even, of Matthew 1, verse 1. It's a sentence Matthew chose to begin his book, and it begins the whole New Testament, the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And that verse, again, is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is clearly and plainly announcing that the wait is over. The message of Christmas is that the Savior, the eternal King, the promised one, has come. And the following 16 verses provide the factual evidence that Jesus has the credentials. He is who Matthew says he is. He's a son of Abraham who will be a blessing to all the nations as God promised. He's the son of David who will be a better David, a perfect king who will establish a perfect righteous kingdom that will never end. David Platt says this of the genealogy, to a people who for generations had longed for a Messiah from the line of David. Matthew is not just giving a list of names in this genealogy. He's announcing the arrival of the king. Now let's conclude by looking at another, the other name that's in Matthew chapter one, verse one, Jesus Christ. Christ, the name is a title. It literally means the anointed one and was used to describe the Messiah, the promise throughout the Old Testament, and the eagerly, longingly awaited deliverer of the people of Israel. We looked at the promises relating to the Messiah's ancestry earlier on. There were varying expectations of the Messiah in Jesus' day. Most of them had to do with political transformation and political change for Israel. But Jesus defined through his life, death, and resurrection who the Messiah is by showing us that he is the son of God, born of a virgin, living a sinless life so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. 
and be raised to life, defeating the power of sin and death. Jesus. Jesus means God will save or the salvation of the Lord. It is the name that God chose for his son. That's why he sent the angel to Joseph to say, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jewish people were very intentional about how they named their children. Names would have a rich meaning in history. So the name Jesus, while not unusual at that time, had a clear meaning that would immediately be understood. Jesus, God will save. So in thinking about the Christmas story and asking what child is this, we are asking, who is Jesus? And we know there are a lot of fanciful characters around Christmas, but not Jesus. This is a factual question, an objective question, and there is a factual answer. And praise God that Matthew gives it to us in these verses and throughout his gospel. But it's not just a factual question. It's a personal question. And the answer is much more than facts. Matthew tells us that too. He records these words from Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The question is also who is Jesus, not who was Jesus. So it's a question about the present and the future. You see, the story continues beyond Jesus' resurrection. Jesus lives today. He loves you with the same love that brought him to earth on that first Christmas, with the same love that took him to the cross. And a future day is coming when Jesus, the Messiah, will return physically to his creation to remake the heavens and the earth, to wipe away every tear, to remove the rebellion of sin and death forever. So the question is, what role will you play in that story? What character will you be? Will you be like Simeon and Anna and wait with joyful anticipation of Jesus' return like they waited for his first coming to earth? Will you be like the shepherds who heard the angel's glorious announcement and went to worship Jesus? Or will you be like Herod who sought to preserve his own power and continued to rebel against the king of kings? There are bound to be people here tonight for whom the question, what child is this, has perhaps not seemed that important. You've come to a Christmas Eve service out of tradition perhaps or maybe a friend invited you and we are so glad you're here. But this Christmas, would you consider the question of what child is this? Would you recognize Jesus for who he is, a blessing for all the peoples, the righteous king, the promised one who will save his people from their sin? Jesus came to earth to die, to die in your place and in mine. He rose again, defeating the power of sin and death. And we looked at several characters in Jesus' family tree tonight. They couldn't save themselves, and you and I can't either. A great leader like Abraham, or a great king like David. They couldn't save themselves. Only Jesus can restore 
your broken relationship with the creator God who loves you. And that's the message of Christmas. Would you trust him tonight? For Christians, for those of us who trust Jesus as our savior and bow to him as king, the message of Christmas is one of great rejoicing. Rejoice in the God who loves us and who saved us. See the glory of God reaching down to us miracle upon miracle upon miracle to bring us to himself. And we look forward with joyful anticipation to his coming again. And let us tell others of this wonderful story, the greatest story this Christmas. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great story, the story of how you loved us and how you sent your son to show your love for us, to live and die for us and to rise again. Lord, we thank you that you fulfill your promises and that we can have confidence in your promises to us. Lord, may we rejoice this Christmas in all that you have done for us and joyfully look to your return when you will make all things right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.